Hey, welcome to the Baptist Bias. I'm your host, Pastor Shelley, and we're going to kick off this evening like we always do with Ben the Baptist, Benalog. The end is near, or so we're told. Perhaps Jesus Christ will return before I even finish this sentence. It appears the reasons for Christ's imminent return vary greatly. But as long as you believe it could be now, you're in the club. Whether you're pre-trib, preterist, amillennial, Buddhist, Muslim, Jew, or a believer in an alien reptile takeover, the prevailing narrative is that the worst is not on the horizon, but rather the next godlike savior to appear will come to redeem the planet. It's like a Venn diagram with eminency in the middle. I guess the question of the century rests on who is coming next and what we should be looking for, or is the end really coming soon? YouTube prophets would have you believe that they finally cracked the code on the next doomsday date and not simply stolen the idea from the expiration of their most recent milk carton, believing it was actually a sign from God. They proclaim that we're in Daniel's 70th week right now. Next week will be the sixth trumpet and the vials are on deck. Yet those facing the biggest challenge, maybe Raid's corporate marketers attempting to replace the label ant and roach on a can of pesticide with a new title of gold-crowned, iron-breast-plated, lion-teeth locusts from hell, especially considering America's supply chain issues. Thanks, Kamala. Even more terrifying is the idea that the man of sin is already amongst us. Is it the Pope, George Soros, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, or maybe even his ex-husband, Melinda? Ugh. It doesn't end there. Fox News and talk radio shows warn that the newest booster shot is the mark of the beast, and masks are the abomination of desolation. Today, the preaching behind pulpits sounds more like the latest weekly world news headlines rather than the two-edged sword of the King James Bible. Perhaps the God of the universe has already given us the answers rather than relying on the belligerent screaming of Alex Jones and David Icke peddling the newest conspiracy of the day. Why should we assume that those who don't believe the Bible and are even convinced that they are Jesus will have the greatest revelation of all time? The reality is truth is only as reliable as its source. To rephrase Joshua's favorite quote, as for me and my house, we will have the Baptist bias. everybody. Thanks so much for joining us this evening. And this is a, a pilot for a new podcast that we're starting. It's called The Baptist Bias. And I'm your host, Pastor Shelley. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I, I pastor out of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And uh, you know, there's a lot of topics that you don't necessarily going to preach a whole sermon on, but you'd like to discuss or, or bring up. And yet it's still important to still use the Bible as your lens when looking at any subject. And so thus is kind of born the Baptist bias. And I'm excited to have here with me uh, my co-host, Ben the Baptist. I want you to go ahead and give, uh, you know, a little shout out uh, to everybody and kind of get a feel for what you think the show's about. Well, first of all, uh, it's great to be here. 
that name Ben the Baptist, by the way, it comes from a YouTube channel that got nuked, just to be clear. But uh, yeah, it's great to be here. Obviously, this is going to be a show where we look at different world events through the lenses of scripture with a Baptist bias. We're pretty open about the bias that we have here on this program, and it's a long time coming. Um, I've been a church member here at Steadfast Baptist Church in the DFW area since January of 2020. Before that at Jacksonville, and I'm ready to go. I'm excited. I'm buckled up, and obviously, uh, End Times Bible Prophecy tonight. Let's get down to business. I'm excited about it. Yeah, tonight we're going to do a show talking about the end times, and and I really like your intro there, your benelog, where you you talk about uh, just how there's a lot of different views out there, and and really when it comes to end times, there's a lot we could talk about. Um, but I felt like you know. To, to start off the show right, we needed to bring in a special guest. And so we have a special guest with us this evening, Pastor Stephen Anderson from Faith Board Baptist Church. And uh, looks like he's already showed up on the screen. Can you hear us all right, Pastor Anderson? Yeah, loud and clear. Thanks for having me on. Great. So why don't you give us just a little quick intro of who you are, and then uh, we'll kind of get started on our discussion this evening. Yeah, I'm Pastor Stephen Anderson from Faithful Word Baptist Church in Tempe, Arizona. I've been there for 16 years, and about, what, 10 years ago now, almost, uh, I came out with a film called After the Tribulation on End Times Prophecy, and then also uh, a Revelation series that I preached, and a bunch of other films that I teamed up with Paul Wittenberger on. Uh, just about subjects that are relevant to the end times, about Israel, prophecy, etc. And so I, it's a subject that I have preached a lot about, studied a lot about, and that I love to talk about. Great. Well, I think we're going to let Ben kind of drive the train here. Why don't you kick us off with some uh, questions here for Pastor Anderson? Well, I guess just first to lay the foundation down for people who perhaps are not too familiar with this, what would you say are kind of the main camps uh, with regard to end times Bible prophecy? I mean, obviously you have the pre-tribbers and you have other groups as well, but if you could describe the main sort of Hmm. ideologies that are related to end times prophecy, how would you kind of summarize that for for people? Well, it, it breaks down in a whole bunch of different ways, but let me just start out with the views on the millennium, because that's kind of the first way that it breaks down. You've got the premillennial, the postmillennial, and the amillennial. What does this mean? Well, the premillennial view believes that Jesus Christ is going to literally return and sit upon the throne of his father David, and we as Christians are going to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. So basically just reading Revelation chapter 20 and taking it at face value. And obviously, Revelation 20 is not the only passage. There are all kinds of other Old Testament passages that describe that same period that we would call the millennium. Whereas the amillennial, which means no millennium, or postmillennial, which means after the millennium, have a totally different view. And amillennial and postmillennial sometimes are almost difficult to tell apart. But the big difference is that we believe that Jesus Christ will return and then set up this millennial reign, whereas both the post-millennial and the amillennial believe that this millennium is more figurative, <clears throat> that it's not literal, okay? So the amillennialist would say that basically Christ is ruling and reigning right now, so you know we're in the quote-unquote millennium right now, but it's just symbolic, it's figurative, it's not actually a thousand years, okay? And... They're really asking the wrong question 
okay, when they say, well, isn't Christ reigning right now? Because if you actually read Revelation 20, the thing that's characteristic of the millennium is that the devil is shut up in hell for a thousand years so that he can no longer deceive the nations. So a much better question to ask would be, well, isn't Christ, or excuse me, a better question to ask would be, isn't the devil already bound in hell right now so that he can't deceive anybody? Of course, that's absurd because we know that right now the devil walketh about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we're clearly not in any kind of millennium, whether figurative or not figurative. Okay. Now, the, the big difference between postmillennialism and amillennialism is that postmillennialism has the view that things are getting better and better, that basically – you know, we're going to win the world to Christ or that the majority of people are going to get saved in the earth or we're going to turn the world Christian or however you want to look at that. And then Christ will return. OK, which is kind of bizarre looking at the way the world actually is right now to actually think that we're getting better or more Christian or preparing for the coming of, of Jesus Christ or something like that. So that's, that's, that's the first way I would break it down is, is into those three millennial views. Okay. And then within the premillennial view, there's going to be the question of when does the rapture happen? Is it before the tribulation? Is it after the tribulation? Is it post-trib pre-wrath? And so some people don't even believe that the rapture is going to happen at all. But – the, that's basically the breakdown of the, of the major views. And then we could also break it down into – futurist, historical, or preterist view of Bible prophecy. Futurist meaning that a lot of these prophecies are literally going to happen in the future, which is obviously the premillennial view. Historicist meaning that it's all symbolic or figurative of just things that have happened throughout history, struggle between good and evil. And then preterist view that everything already happened pretty much in the first century and there's nothing more to see here or partial preterist, most of the Olivet Discourse happened in the first century, but there's still a little bit still coming. I thought it was a really good uh, explanation breakdown of, uh, of the camps there. Um, it seems like, you know, just from my perspective in Christianity, the most prevailing view is probably a premillennial pre-trib. Is that kind of your viewpoint as well, far as like what I, most people are or what do you think as far as popularity it really just depends on what denomination you are because it you know if you're an independent baptist or an evangelical christian then the majority are going to be premillennial and they're going to believe in a pre-tribulation rapture jesus could come at any moment type of a doctrine okay but among your mainline protestants okay it's going to be more of a historicist view maybe preterist, a lot of post-millennialism, a lot of amillennialism, you know, uh, Roman Catholics are going to probably lean more toward a preterist view. But again, it, it really just depends on the denomination of, of what, you know, most people believe. But I will say this, one thing that a lot of these views end up having in common that most people end up believing is that Basically, the coming of Christ is imminent, that it could come at any time, because if you think about it, the pre-trib believers, they believe Christ could come at any moment. And then those who are amillennial or postmillennial, you know, they believe that Christ could come soon or, or without anything necessarily leading up to it. And so 
you know, the reason that this these views are so dangerous, amillennialism, postmillennialism, and to a lesser extent, pre-tribulationism, is that basically if people are expecting Christ to come at any moment and the real person who's coming at any moment is the Antichrist, you can see how this would play right into the devil's plan because, you know, the Antichrist is going to come before Jesus Christ. And, you know, the post-millennialist, the amillennialist will just say, oh, here he is and, and embrace him as their savior. Because we know that when the Antichrist comes, the whole world's going to worship him. 2.3 billion people in this world identify as Christian. And so obviously the Muslims are going to worship him 1.6 billion strong the Buddhists, the Hindus, he has to appeal to everyone if the Bible says the whole world's going to worship him. And so you say, well, how are Christians going to be fooled into thinking that this is the second coming of Christ? You know, they're already prepped for this idea that the Antichrist is not literal, he's not actually coming, and they're expecting Jesus to come. Now, the pre-trippers are also expecting Jesus at any moment. At least they believe they're leaving, though. You know, so if they don't leave, then hopefully that will, you know, ring some alarm bells when they have somebody on the scene claiming that he's Jesus Christ. But obviously our view, which is post-trib, pre-wrath, post-tribulation, pre-wrath, is the correct view. And it's the view that doesn't prepare for the Antichrist because it's the view that said that says, no, we know the Antichrist is coming and we're watching out for him. We're going to beware of him. And we know that the imposter comes first and not to believe anybody who shows up claiming that they're Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ does show up in the clouds, we are leaving because it's a post-trip pre-wrath rapture. And so we're basically in the ideal camp for not being sucked in by the Antichrist no matter what. Yeah, I think that's really great. And I mean, uh, a place of scripture that really hammers the fact that uh, the Antichrist is going to come before would be Second Thessalonians chapter 2, which says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. It says, Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So, you know, for any of these views to be accurate... Um, as the, the the starting point of Second Thessalonians chapter two verse one is saying it's the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have to be able to point to an event where there was an antichrist who's claiming himself to be God, standing in the holy place, and and that's kind of an a really important uh, part of Bible prophecy is is identifying that antichrist figure and the timing of him as well, and it seems like there's kind of some contention as far as who that is or when that is, maybe even like in the book of Daniel, a lot of people will kind of go to Daniel and there's like some differing views on the Antichrist or how he's going to come or what that looks like. Um, I'm kind of interested in getting your thoughts on the book of Daniel specifically and and kind of the Antichrist figure. Um, what, do you, what do you think about identifying the timeline of the Antichrist and, and especially in light of books like Daniel? Well, you know, the, these people with these wrong views, like the historicist view would just say, oh, the Pope's the Antichrist, you know, or, you know, the preterist view might say that Nero was the Antichrist or, 
Emperor Titus was the Antichrist or Antiochus Epiphanes was the Antichrist. And although these people are all great pictures of the Antichrist, all of them, you know, could represent or symbolize the Antichrist. You know, the Bible says there are many Antichrists, but that there's also just a single Antichrist that's coming. And the Bible makes it clear in Revelation 13 that there's going to be a man who receives a deadly wound. His deadly wound is healed. The entire world will worship him. All languages, kindreds, tongues, and peoples on the earth will worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And so none of these other people fit the bill. The whole world didn't worship any of these Roman emperors or Greek rulers. The whole world doesn't worship the pope. All nations, kindreds, tongues, and peoples aren't worshiping the pope because you've got tons of, of Muslim countries and Buddhist countries and Hindu people that do not worship the pope as as their messiah or whatever. And, and so, you know, when does this happen? Well, the Bible says that he's going to reign for 42 months. The Bible says that the Antichrist will continue in power for three and a half years, 42 months, you know, 1260 days, the different ways that it's described. And if you compare that to the scripture back in Daniel chapter nine, in verse 27, where it talks about the abomination of desolation happening in the midst of the week, basically what you end up with is you end up with a seven year period in the end times. Okay. And this is known as Daniel's 70th week. And in the seven year period, in the midst of the week is when the Antichrist comes to power. He receives his deadly wound that's healed. The world declares him to be the Messiah, the second coming, you know, whatever they call him. He's going to be this godlike messianic figure. The whole world will worship him. And then there's going to be a false prophet that rises up, according to Revelation 13, that's going to tell the whole world to worship him. And we'll also say that they need to make an image to the beast. And that everyone needs to worship this image. Okay. And whoever won't worship it should be put to death. And, and you know, when you worship the image, then you receive this mark in your right hand or your forehead, of course, known as the mark of the beast. So the timing of this is that it's three and a half years into this seven-year period known as Daniel's 70th week, which has not started yet, which has for sure not started yet. None of this has happened yet. And it might not happen for hundreds of years. I mean, it, it could start in a week or it could start 20 years from now or it could start 500 years from now. We have no idea when this will start. We're not in the end times as far as the final seven years yet. We are just, uh, you know, living in the Christian era. You know, that's why all these atheists call it CE because the Christian era that we're living in. So that's uh, a joke. It's now, a joke. Do you have let, let's? I think we should d dive into Daniel a little bit more. I, but do you I have some questions should. here that you want? Yeah, to and and just a real out. quick comment uh, before I get into Daniel nine. A real quick comment because you had brought up some of these shadow fulfillments, if you want to call it that, or figures of the Antichrist that we see in the Book of Daniel, whether it's Antiochus Epiphanes or Titus. It, it seems like people just have this issue with even the concept of a shadow fulfillment. You know, like they, they kind of think like, well, if this event occurred in history that matches scripture, then it's done. There's nothing left for the future. And I did have a question about that later. We'll get to, but Daniel nine, I'm not sure, honestly, how popular the, what I call the Messiah view is in Daniel chapter nine, where people think he is the Messiah. But I just wanted to read a few verses 
uh, toward the latter portion of the chapter and kind of dive into this because, um, again, there is a little bit of contention on verse 27 specifically. But I, I guess I'll start in verse 24. It says, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And under the end of the war, desolations are determined. Verse 27, this is the one that people kind of fight about. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Obviously, you just preached about this, Pastor Anderson. You know the interpretation of verse 27 that would say that he there is in reference to the Messiah that is brought up in verse 26 rather than the Antichrist. And so I guess my question, and I think we could dive into this now, why would he be the Antichrist there rather than the Messiah? Just to play devil's advocate, there might be some people who would look at verse 26 and say, well, it says the people of the prince that shall come. And so the last singular uh, antecedent would be Messiah, people might argue. But w what are your thoughts on that? Verse 27 specifically, uh, what would you say to back up the idea that it's actually in reference to Titus as the figure and then obviously the Antichrist himself from an eschatological perspective? Well, first of all, the last singular noun that's mentioned is prince. People of the prince that shall come. Prince can still be the antecedent. The fact that it is the object of a preposition does not stop it from being the antecedent. What if I said, I went over to our deacon's house and he fed me lunch? That is a perfectly legitimate sentence to say, I went to the house of the Lord and worshiped him. I went to the house of our deacon and we ate a meal together. Okay, so this idea that says, well, it's the people of the prince, so prince can't be the antecedent. That's just a, a grammar fail. They just don't understand how the English language works. And we could look at verses all throughout the Bible where the object of a preposition can still be the antecedent of a subject pronoun. So that's just that argument is just dead in the water. OK, but as far as why do I believe that this is the Antichrist? That's the he. First of all, it is the nearest antecedent. But the real reason why I believe that is because listen to Daniel chapter eight talking about the little horn which is a picture of the Antichrist, it says in Daniel chapter 8, verse number 12, and an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? So basically, it says in Daniel chapter 8, verse 11, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away. So talking about the little horn, the Antichrist, verse 11 says, by him the daily sacrifice was taken away. It says in verse 12, he's against the daily sacrifice, and the place of the sanctuary is cast down, against the daily sacrifice. I mean, clearly, 
in chapter eight, it's the little horn, which pictures the Antichrist that is taking away the daily sacrifice and setting up the transgression of desolation. Then if we go to Daniel chapter number 11, we find another mention of the abomination of desolation. And it says in Daniel chapter 11, verse 31, an arm shall stand on his part and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily sacrifice and shall place the abomination that make it desolate. So notice the same person who takes away the daily sacrifice is the same person that places the abomination of desolation in Daniel chapter 11. So we have the little horn, which is obviously representative of the Antichrist. The little horn in verse 7 is referencing the Antichrist. The little horn in verse eight uh, in chapter 8 is referencing the Antichrist. Chapter 11, verse 31, we're talking about the Antichrist. Chapter 12 is another mention of the abomination of desolation. And it says in verse 11, from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away and the abomination that make it desolate set up. Notice how those things go hand in hand. So if you're going to say Jesus is the one that's that's taking away the daily sacrifice, are you saying that Jesus sets up the abomination of desolation? That's absurd. Jesus is not the one installing an abomination. So this view that says that Jesus is the subject in Daniel 9.27 is basically just reading chapter 9 all by itself, ignoring chapters 7 and 8, and ignoring chapters 11 and 12. If you actually read chapter 7 and 8 and 11 and 12, you'll see that we're talking about the Antichrist who does this. I think an interesting uh, point in, in some of this is in verse 31 when you were reading that. It actually says they, which to me would almost tie it back to verse 26 of Daniel chapter 9 when it's kind of talking about the people and it's saying the people are going to dis- you know destroy the city and the sanctuary, which obviously those people are the minions of the Antichrist doing his bidding. Obviously, the Antichrist probably isn't setting up the image himself, but by his commandment through his people. And so we kind of see a coordination of they. But by saying they, in my mind, it kind of precludes the idea of it being Christ. Like, you know, how could you then go back and say, this is Christ in in verse 27? Well, I don't think anybody would say that chapter 11, verse 31 is about Christ. And they wouldn't, nobody's going to say that about Daniel chapter 8, verses 11. But then all of a sudden, Daniel 9, 27 is about Christ. That's why this view doesn't make any sense. And, and just to be clear, obviously, the book of Daniel had some messages for the people of that time as well. So when we're reading Daniel chapter 7 and we talk about the little horn, that's prefiguring Titus, the Roman uh, commander who eventually becomes the Roman emperor who destroyed the temple in 70 A.D., That's the actual immediate fulfillment of that in Daniel 7. Daniel chapter 8, we're talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, because in chapter 7, we're talking about the little horn of the fourth kingdom, whereas in Daniel 8, we're talking about the little horn from the third kingdom, which is from the Grecian Empire. And then, you know, when we get into chapter 11, we're again talking about Antiochus Epiphanes in the short term. But, you know, uh, Brother Ben asked a little bit earlier you know, well, if these things have already been fulfilled, if there's a historical event that already fits the bill, why would we be looking for a future fulfillment? You know, if, if it's already done, it's done, you know, which is the preterist mentality. But the problem is that 
the fulfillment of these by Antiochus Epiphanes and Titus in 70 AD, the, the problem with these is that they did not fulfill all of it, and they did not fulfill it to a T. That's the problem, okay? They only fulfilled it partially or symbolically. They didn't really actually fulfill it the way the Bible says it's going to be fulfilled. Like, for example, you know, did these people declare themselves to be God? Well, yeah, in the second century BC, Antiochus Epiphanes declared himself to be God. There's even a coin that's been found that says, you know, Antiochus Epiphanes is God manifest, okay, from the second century BC. But here's the thing. Did the whole world worship him? No. Did all nations, kindreds, tongues, and peoples worship him? Absolutely not. Not even close. Was there a mark where you couldn't buy or sell during the Roman Empire? Absolutely not. So, you know, you could sit there and say, oh, it's all done. Well, you know what? Then the Bible was super duper exaggerating, wasn't it? And so because none of the stuff that the Bible said would happen actually happened, something way more minor happened that still is a great picture. But if that's the main event, you'd have to pretty much just believe that all of the, the prophecies of the Bible are just exaggerating things times 100. And it's these tiny minor events, local events that supposedly fulfill this stuff. I mean, think about Matthew 24 saying that there's going to be a time of tribulation unlike the world has ever seen from the time that men were on the earth until now forward. There's never been anything this bad. Could you really say that about Antiochus Epiphanes or the Jewish-Roman War in the first century? These were little local skirmishes that were barely even a blip on most people's radar throughout the world. Okay. And so, you know, often what we've said is that, you know, the only view that says that the things in Revelation are going to literally take place is the premillennial view. But really, that's not even the right way to say it. A better way to say it would be that the premillennial view is the only view that even thinks that the things in Revelation are going to happen at all. Forget being fulfilled, literally. I mean, if you believe these things are going to happen at all, if if, if, if they're even going to somewhat happen, is a premillennial view. Because these, these amillennial and postmillennial views take all the teeth out of these prophecies to where they're just a great big nothing burger is what you're left with as far as all the cataclysms described in Revelation. That's what always blows my mind. Like, you know, one volcano erupts in Iceland and all of a sudden it's like, oh man, you know, this is the fifth trumpet or something <laughs> of Revelation. It's like, do you really think that the, that the trumpets are going to be that minor? That the vials are going to be that minor? And is God just scaring us with all these dramatic judgments that aren't even really going to happen? Hey, I just believe that the stuff in Revelation is actually going to happen. Okay? Yeah, that's and, like and, the earthquakes. There's like thousands of earthquakes every day, and, and some people aren't aware of that. So then they'll point it out, and everybody's like freaking out like, <laughs> there's thousands of earthquakes or something. I, I think an interesting point on what you're making, though, is in Matthew 24, it specifically addresses the Daniel prophecy in regards to the abomination of desolation. In verse 15, it says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, and then it, and it elaborates, that would, in my mind, completely eradicate the idea that Antiochus Epiphanes had actually fulfilled all of Daniel, because Christ has already passed Antiochus Epiphanes, but then right. bringing up this is a future event. So the only exactly. potential would be Titus. Yeah, Titus would be the only one left. Now, I, I want to make a few comments. Ben brought up the grammar question. And um, it's not even it's only a I've, question for someone who knows nothing about grammar. Right. Because I, I defy anyone to show me a grammar book that has this non-existent rule 
that people of the prince, that the he can't refer back to prince because it's in a preposition. We talk that way every day. That that was just sure. That's so well, far out in the field. It's I, just not even- I have an I couldn't find – I actually did a, a search in many grammar books and online. I couldn't find a single rule you know, isn't there. that even th- th- theoretically exists. But in Daniel chapter 7, it's interesting because it says in verse 20 – um, five, it says, and he shall speak great words against the most high. So talking of the antichrist and it says, and shall wear out the saints of the most high and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times of the dividing of time. But the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Now, if we had this theoretical rule that a pronoun cannot go back to the, to the, to the noun of a prepositional phrase, then that him there would not be able to go back to the most high. It would have to go back to the previous antecedent, which would actually be the Antichrist. So that's how, that's how foolish and stupid you'd have to be to, to basically adhere to this idea or doctrine that a pronoun can't be going back to. Yeah, you could literally turn to probably almost any page in the whole Bible and find an example that violates this this made-up <laughs> grammar. But, but anyway, let me just park it on Matthew 24 for a second because this is the key point. And if, and if people are watching this, if there's one thing you take away from this broadcast, take this away from it, okay? In Matthew 24, it says, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Okay. Verse 21 is still continuing the same thought. And it says, for then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, known or ever shall be. So if you're going to claim that the abomination of desolation already happened then explain to me why there was not a time of tribulation unlike the world had ever seen at either of those events. Okay, because again, and like you said, <clears throat> Jesus is after Antiochus Epiphanes, so it would it would have to be 70 AD. Was that really a time of tribulation unlike the world has ever seen? No, nor ever shall be. He said, there will nothing be worse than this after it. And you could say, you know, oh, well, it was the worst thing for the Jews or whatever. But that that's not what the Bible says. I mean, it says... Then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. Everybody be dead. Everybody would die. You know, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So what in the world? Like, like when did an event happen that where, you know, the elect would be totally in danger of being wiped out and just totally killed. And if it wasn't shortened, all the elect would be killed. It, you know, even if you took the, the the wrong view that said the elect is referring to Israel or the Jews, the Jews are already scattered all over the world in the first century AD. So a local event in Jerusalem isn't going to wipe them out, period. It can't. It wiped out the ones who were there, but it did wipe them out and it was not shortened. OK, there was no shortening that took place. They just got killed. And the ones who were scattered everywhere lived, okay? Well, but but in the end times, if there's going to be the mark of the beast, anybody who won't worship the Antichrist should be killed. Yeah, that's something where if those days were not shortened, 
then, you know, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days would be shortened. So when shall there be great tribulation unlike the world has ever seen? When you see the abomination of desolation at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's when things get really bad. The first three and a half years are bad, but I'll tell you when it becomes something unprecedented that the world has never seen is after that midpoint. So you can't divorce verse 15 from verse 21 of Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, when you see the abomination, there must be the greatest tribulation that the world has ever seen. That did not happen in the first century. Therefore, that view is just, it's toast. You know, I, <clears throat> that's a great point. And I think that uh, there's a lot of those. That That's one one of the reasons why, you know, we can't wholesale accept 70 AD as the final fulfillment of all of Daniel's 70th week. Um, I, I think that uh, we could say that 70 AD was a partial fulfillment in the sense that it, it's fulfilling Daniel's 70th week in some regards and in some of these verses, but it's not like the only fulfillment. There's got to be a future shadow fulfillment. And I wanted to get your thought on, on something about this, because I, I've heard some people even say, well, you're kind of ignoring the whole context of the chapter. But in, in the beginning of Daniel chapter number nine, it's bringing up the 70 weeks of the Babylonian captivity. And it's, it's definitely, I'm sorry, yeah, 70 years, I misspoke. Um, the 70 years that they're going to be there and they're going to return at the end of the 70 years. Daniel understands this from the book of Jeremiah. And then he gets this vision from an angel that's also about 70 weeks. And it's kind of an interesting parallel with the number there. But what I was thinking about is in 1 Kings chapter 8, King Solomon, and I'm not going to read a lot of verses. There's a lot of verses there. But essentially, he's just making a generic prayer to the Lord, saying at any point, if his people end up getting dispersed throughout the land and they realize they've sinned, that they can you know, uh, repent and seek the Lord and pray and humble themselves, and then the Lord would restore them back to the promised land or back to Jerusalem, essentially. And that's what's happening with the 70 years, is after the 70 years, we're going to have that proclamation, they're going to go back. Now, in this 70 weeks, what, what I was thinking about is if the fulfillment is Titus, which, you know, of course, that's a layer to this prophecy, and, and I believe that it is a partial fulfillment of this. But if that was the ultimate fulfillment it really doesn't fit with the context because at the end of 70 AD, it's kind of doing the exact opposite where it's not like they're returning to the land. They're actually getting dispersed back out of the land. However, if we understand this as being the antichrist and it's the last seven years of history before the millennium, that at the end of the millennium, then what is going to happen is God's people's actually going to come all the way back into the land, which is exactly what, the first 70 year, you know, prophecy is basically doing in, in essence where the children of Israel are outside of the land, praying and humbling themselves and then being returned back to the land. And this 70 weeks correlates with that as saying like, yeah, here's another example of when you're going to be dispersed essentially. And then at the end fulfillment of that 70th week, you're going to have a full return of the children of Israel in the land of Israel in Jerusalem with the Lord reigning and you kind of have that that picture of restoration again. What do you think about that? You're absolutely that? right. Yeah, you, you're you're absolutely right. 
that's a great point because basically the 70 years ends up in a happy ending of Israel returning to the promised land and the 70 weeks ultimately in its final ultimate fulfillment ends up with again the children of Israel in the promised land living happily ever after as far as the millennial reign of Christ of course it's not going to be the Jews that are living over in Israel right now. They don't get a happy ending. They're going to get their backsides handed to them in the end times. But what it's going to be is because there's going to be a resurrection of the dead, all of the Israelites throughout history that are resurrected and the Christians who've been uh, resurrected, we're going to rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Jesus is on the throne of David. You know, so yeah, at the end of the 70 year Babylonian captivity, you have Zerubbabel, the son of David, you know, coming back to rule and they're setting up their kingdom again and so forth. But that's a shadow fulfillment because it was kind of a shadow of a kingdom that they set up. Whereas, like you said, at the end of the 70 weeks, you have the real kingdom. And, you know, you read earlier from Daniel chapter seven, how right after the whole thing with the Antichrist and the his kingdom, you roll into the saints possessing the kingdom and, you know, Christ and the saints ruling and reigning. And that's what's going to happen. So, yeah, Daniel's 70th week was in the first century A.D. with 70 A.D. being the middle of the week when the temple was destroyed. But that was not a complete fulfillment. That was only a shadow fulfillment. The real fulfillment of Daniel's 70th week is going to be in the future and like you said, it will have a happy ending because it's going to roll directly into the millennium when the 70th week ends. And so it fits the context of Daniel 9 perfectly. But but here's the thing. The context of Daniel 9 is Daniel's trying to figure out what happens when the 70 years ends. You know, it's like he's praying. He, he read about it. He realizes that the captivity is 70 years. OK, how do we move forward? God, I'm sorry for the sins of our nation. He confesses the sin to God and so forth. And then God basically explains to him what's going to happen. What's going to happen? Well, there's going to be a commandment to rebuild the city and the street and rebuild Jerusalem. The Messiah is going to come. The Messiah is going to be cut off, but not for himself because he dies for us. Then there's going to be a war and the people of the prince that shall come are going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. And they're going to make it desolate and yada, yada, yada. That's what's going to happen. That's what happens. So whether that, whether in the text right there, there's a happy ending, who cares? It doesn't well, matter. The, the, well, here's the thing. The say, point that I'm making, hey. the point that I'm making is that the 70 AD doesn't fit that context at all. So it pretty much precludes yeah. the fact that Titus couldn't have that same correlation to the, the context of the chapter because it's like a complete opposite ending of what the actual yeah. 70 years is. Yeah, and the Messiah interpretation would absolutely not fit that because they're already in the land. So it's like, where, where do you have, I guess that the stoning of Stephen is what people said is would be the end of the seven year period with that interpretation. But I just wanted to mention real quickly, because you, you know we're talking about the shadow fulfillment as well of, of Daniel 9. And I remember when I first learned about it, uh, the, the Roman-Jewish War, 66 AD to 73 AD, with 70 AD being the, the midpoint, I almost fell out of my chair. Now, obviously, the Bible authenticates itself. I don't need a historical event to have faith in the Word of God. But it is really cool, though. Uh, and again, it is a shadow fulfillment, but it is cool to see how the first Roman-Jewish War was, was predicted, that week, that seven-year period, 
predicted in Daniel chapter 9. And then, of course, you have the prediction of the temple being destroyed at the midpoint, which we know, according to secular history, actually occurred, uh, again, courtesy of the Romans. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it was all fulfilled like you guys uh, already touched on. Yeah, and, and, and the great thing about this is that, you know, everyone agrees that the book of Daniel was was totally finished by the second century B.C., okay? And so if the book of Daniel is totally finished by the second century B.C., and it's predicting this fourth kingdom that's going to be different and that's going to just crush and, and be so cruel and so forth, you know, it's, it's a great description of what the Roman military and the Roman Empire yeah. was like. And then basically, before, you know, describing that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, the temple is going to be destroyed, you know, by the Romans. Yeah, that's being predicted hundreds of years in advance. And it's, it's a really cool prophecy to be fulfilled. And then Jesus predicted it again in his earthly ministry with even more detail. And it all took place. So, yeah, it's, it's a really cool fulfillment of prophecy. But again, when you when you gravitate towards some of these other views it, it could lose some of its coolness oh yeah if you especially don't the messiah view. If, if you take that messianic view they're basically saying that 70 ad is not part of the 70th week it's just it's just something something else well and how do, there's really no concrete seven year period it's just kind of like a lot of guessing it seems like if if in verse 27 the he is messiah because i've, I've heard them say well that you have the three and a half year ministry of Christ, but that's not really a, a proven point in scripture. You don't really have anything afterwards that seems to really confirm that. Whereas our view, we're saying you kind of have this seven year war from 66 AD to 73 AD. And right there in the midst at 70 AD, you have that destruction of Jerusalem. So it's like a perfect seven year period. It, it, it really hammers this uh, middle part of the week. And then beyond that, in the book of Revelation, it makes it abundantly clear that there's a seven year period from both sides of the angle. You got the 1,260 days, you got the 1,290 days, you got the 42 months, you got all these like half year periods. You got the clear midpoint with the Revelation chapter 13 with the Antichrist uh, making a big switch, you know, with the devil coming inside of him. And so, it, you know, you both, you have like these seven year periods really well defined in history and in scripture that you're just kind of almost throwing out, in my opinion, when you look at verse 27 as being already fulfilled or Christ has somehow fulfilled that in a completely different way or something like that. So, what do you well, and again, the, you know, the the independent fundamental Baptists who were talking about this like a week ago that came out with this when they had their second broadcast where they were just acting like, oh, it's so cool. And Daniel 927 is the Messiah and all this stuff. You know, the guy that's sort of the guru out of those three guys, you know, he he had these charts that he was showing on the screen, you know, to show his view. And, and if you'll notice on both of these charts. I don't know how well you can see it, but basically, you know, on these charts, basically just the next thing to happen is just Jesus returns. You know, we're already into this 2021 <clears throat> and then just boom, Jesus returns. And again, same thing here. It's just the next event on God's prophetic calendar is just Jesus returns to rule and reign. King Jesus returns, you know, is what he has on there. And the guy even said Jesus could come back tomorrow. Okay. 
maybe the man of sin's already revealed, you know, and Jesus could come back tomorrow. So, so what if the Antichrist shows up tomorrow? Well, if this is the doctrine that everybody's being fed, you can understand why a whole bunch of so-called Christians are going to follow this because this is the false doctrine that they've been fed, that Jesus can come at any moment. Guess who's really coming at any moment? The Antichrist. Antichrist. So that's the big problem. Yeah, well, if, if Christ was about to come, it, it's kind of funny to me because I'm thinking like, that seems really random. Whereas in the book of Revelation, it's kind of this huge buildup because you kind of, you have the Antichrist, you have this mark of the beast, Christians are being slaughtered like it's never happened before across the entire world, people are being beheaded for Christ, and then Christ has to come and rescue the remnant that's left on the earth before they're all destroyed. Like, that kind of makes sense why Christ is coming. If Christ just came tomorrow, it's like, you know, I... I Obviously, that's great, but I'm just like, it doesn't like, seem like there's now? any buildup. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, what was, you know, why didn't you just save us before Biden or something? You know, like, what is the, I don't know, is he saving us from Kamala or something? Like, what well, is the. If he would have saved us before Biden, I, I wouldn't have got all those uh, stimulus checks for my 11 kids. So kind of <laughs> and, and, and you, yeah, you got a lot of uh, stimulus. On that's that true. Of course, and I will there's say hyperinflation going on, but hey, you know. Yeah. Just yeah. to back you up, though, Pastor, uh, you brought up the idea that Jesus would um, sort of come back and, 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 and rescue people. I mean, that's what the Bible says in Matthew 24 when it says, and except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. I mean, without the rapture, the Antichrist would just take us out, right? I mean, that's that's the idea is that 75-day period of great tribulation, which, you know, we don't have to get into that right now as to where we get that number, but it's basically subtracting 1,335 by 1,260. Um you know, that that time period is shortened by the return of Jesus Christ, and that's what enables us all to basically not get completely destroyed by this uh, this great tribulation, which we don't see, like you said, we don't see that occurring in the first century AD, and certainly with regard to the Grecian Empire as well, which is further proof that, again, you have dual fulfillments when it comes to Bible prophecy, and for whatever reason, this is something that preterists just don't like. They've created a false dichotomy where you have to pick between the near future fulfillment and the end times fulfillment, but I'm saying, why not both? There you go. It's both. Why not both? Yeah, I think what's interesting for me too, also, I've, I've made a, a chart a few years ago um, trying to kind of plot just the sequence of events. And when I was making my chart, I didn't even use Daniel to to like really as my basis. I was using Revelation because Revelation's the more clear scripture, and it's giving like so many detailed events. Um, mm-hmm. And then I plotted Daniel later, but I, I feel like even if I didn't have some of the great prophecies of Daniel, I could still come to every conclusion that I already have. So it's weird to me to then take the book of Daniel to destroy all the really clear doctrine in the book of Revelation um, based on, you know, kind of a more cryptic and, and a more difficultly, uh, difficult to understand passage of scripture. What is your, you know, perspective as far as end times prophecy? Do you kind of give emphasis to one section of scripture more than another? I think, you know, maybe we should use something as more of our jumping off point or like, what's your kind of viewpoint Absolutely. as far as? Uh, yeah. Absolutely. The book of Revelation should, first of all, the New Testament should be paramount, but especially the book of Revelation should be paramount 
and then the epistles and then the gospels before we start talking about anything in the Old Testament. The New Testament is paramount, especially the book of Revelation. And I will say this, that, you know, if there's any point of prophecy in the book of Daniel or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or anywhere else that doesn't have an analog in the New Testament, then it probably has no future significance. So, for example, you know, we're reading Daniel chapter 11 and there's all this stuff about the king of the north and the king of the south and all this back and forth. You know, I think it's pretty safe to say that that stuff all happened back then and doesn't have any significance for the future because none of that is repeated in the New Testament. Okay, but these guys will say that, like, oh, well, that's how Daniel's 70th week is. You know, it's not repeated in the New Testament. That's absurd because you have tons of this number in the New Testament. You have tons of talk about three and a half years and three and a half years with this big event punctuating them in the middle. So if you got three and a half, big event, three and a half, and you have that over and over in Revelation, not just one time. I mean, look at chapter 11, look at chapter 12, look at chapter 13. It hammers these numbers about 1260 days, 42 months, time, time, and half a times, which is three and a half years, 1290 days, 1260 days, 42 months. These numbers are getting hammered so to sit there and say, nope, nope, no 70th week here, nothing to see here, no seven-year period being described, anybody can see that there's a seven-year period described. Now, of course, these post-millennial, millennial types might just say, like, oh, it's just figurative, seven's an ideal number, a thousand's an ideal number, but they just don't even believe in a millennium. They just think it's all figurative, it's all symbolic, none of it's actually going to happen. Well, if you actually believe this stuff is going to happen— <clears throat> Well, then, duh, there's a seven-year period described in Revelation, punctuated in the middle. Hmm, kind of sounds like Daniel's 70th week. And then it fits perfectly with the Antichrist and the false prophet setting up an image in Revelation 13. It fits like a glove. And it, it, it's funny how some people, they want to try to, like, mix these views. They want to mix, like, partial preterism with a futurist view of post-trib pre-wrath. And, and these these partial preterist guys that, that are independent Baptists are claiming to be post-trib pre-wrath. How is that? How are you post-trib pre-wrath? You're like no trib because they're just like, well, we're in tribulation right now. And, and, and you know, there's, there's no the great tribulation coming. It's just, it's just we're always in tribulation. It's like, well, okay, I get that. Yeah, we are always experiencing trials and tribulations. But sorry, there is a great tribulation coming. So you're not post-trib pre-wrath if you believe that. You're you're no-trib pre-wrath, okay? And I'm not and, – and, and look, I'm not saying that that's what Pastor McMurtry believes because he doesn't. Pastor McMurtry doesn't even agree with the guys that he had on his program because they're partial preterists. And they're – especially that Pastor Clem guy was teaching textbook partial preterism and saying that Jesus could come back tomorrow – he believed everything is is virtually fulfilled except for just the second coming of Christ and a, a few things. Whereas Pastor Tommy McMurtry is trying to like import a little bit of partial preterism into the post-trib pre-wrath view. And it's like putting a round peg in a square hole. It does not fit at all. I mean, at least these guys have a consistent view, even though it's garbage and not from the Bible. At least they have it figured out. You can't, but but to try to mix that with a futurist view, post-trib pre-wrath view, it's absurd. 
Because you, you can't sit there and say, oh, Daniel's 70 week is totally fulfilled, nothing to see here, and then claim that the stuff in Revelation is still going to happen when you got three and a half years coming at you six ways to Sunday. Well, one one thing I'd like to do is I'd, I'd like to pull up my chart from Revelation and, and just so people have a visual aid, but then have you kind of just explain how you interpret the book of Revelation. Because I think there's a lot of people that just don't even uh, know how to interpret the book of Revelation because they've heard so many weird, you know, views on this. But before I get there, someone did ask a question um, in regards to this Daniel 9 thing. They said in verse 27, it talks about, and he shall confirm a covenant. And they're kind of curious if we, you know, take the interpretation that that's Titus and then eventually the the coming Antichrist, the question I guess they're asking is like, what covenant is being confirmed? What would you say um, to that question? Well, first of all, Titus doesn't have to fulfill everything in 70 AD because he's only the shadow fulfillment. There's still more coming. Okay. But basically, you know, it says he, and we obviously believe that's the Antichrist, will confirm the covenant with many for one week. Obviously, in order for the Antichrist to come to power, he's going to have to make some kind of a covenant or deal or agreement with a whole bunch of people. You can't just come to power unilaterally. You've got to make all the alliances. And we know that there's for sure an alliance between him and the Ten Kings, where in the end times the Ten Kings have one mind to give all their power to the Antichrist. But you know what these guys were saying on their broadcast the other day was like, well, where do you ever see the Antichrist making a covenant or, or breaking a covenant? You don't see anything like that. But, you know, here's a great passage from Daniel chapter 11, which we would obviously point to as a foreshadowing of the Antichrist. It says in verse 21 of chapter 11, and in his estate shall stand up a vile person to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And with the arms of a flood shall they be overflown from before him and shall be broken. Yea, also the prince of the covenant. And watch this. And after the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully, for he shall come up and that with a small people and become strong with small people, etc. But the part I want to point out, and obviously this is a complicated chapter that's about Antiochus Epiphanes, <clears throat> but also points to the Antichrist because it brings up the abomination of desolation which Jesus pointed to as being future, okay? But notice what it says. After the league made with him, he shall work deceitfully. Okay, so basically, that's him making a league with people and then working deceitfully, basically not following through on that or, or breaking the league, breaking the covenant. So just because it doesn't use the word covenant, this is the problem with being a, a Google search Bible scholar or an eSword Bible scholar where you just sit there and do these searches because you just search covenant or search, you know, abomination of desolation. You're not going to find everything because in one place, the abomination of desolation is called the transgression of desolation. You're not going to find that on your Google search. OK, or here it's not called a covenant. It's called a league. But what is a league? A league is basically a, a confederacy it's, it's some kind of a, a treaty where people join together. Think of the League of Nations after World War One, And so he forms a league and then deals deceitfully. That's him confirming a covenant with many for seven years or for one week. And then, you know, in the midst of the covenant, he does what? 
you know, he deals deceitfully. He works deceitfully. He goes back on whatever he said that he was going to do. Well, so. I, I agree with that. For me, first of all, when it says he, I, I think it's definitely Titus in some ways, but it doesn't have to be Titus. So, like, part of this is obviously Titus uh, fulfillment, but I think it's the Antichrist that's probably fulfilling verse 27 as far as the confirming of the covenant. And, and an interesting point, you know, I, I, I thought as well of the, the ten kings. But in Daniel chapter 7, it says, and I want to read a little bit of verses here. It says in verse 20, it says, And of the ten horns that were in his head, and of the other which came up, and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows, I beheld, and the same horn made war against the saints and prevailed against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. Now what I think is interesting about this portion of Scripture is it kind of gives light to the idea that there could be a 10-king covenant or league with the Antichrist. He's, he's using flattery, just telling them what they want to hear. But then there's a point in which he basically breaks this covenant with all of them. And what's alluded here in verses 20 and 21 and 22 is that the timing of when these three fall is when the saints are being warred against which we would look at as being the fifth seal or the abomination of desolation, which is right in the midst of the week. So it almost pictures like right in the midst of the week, three kings are falling. Then all of a sudden the Antichrist is declaring some God and is kind of abandoning and dropping these 10 guys or, or not really honoring whatever commitment he may have made with them, setting up the abomination of desolation, calling himself God. That's just a little bit of, you know, my reading between the lines. There. I mean, what the, do you think the, about the only, the only, the only problem with that is that the is that the you know the ten kings are still players at the very end, but it could be a different set of ten kings because they could be replaced with with ten yes men or whatever. But but the point is that you know he well the three are going to fall right. Yeah, so so then they could be replaced <clears throat> or whatever. But but the point is I I think that the the view that we hold here as far as what does it mean. For him to confirm the covenant with many, but then to deal deceitfully after he's made this league, is I think that the the the, the people that he's really double crossing the most are the Jews. So the Jews are some of the people that he's covenanting with, but not necessarily just a covenant with Israel. It's a covenant with a whole bunch. It's with many. He's confirmed the covenant with many. It's, it's world <clears throat> leaders. It could be ten kings plus other people as well. Okay. And so the reason I say it's it's the Jews as well is because you know what seems to be happening is that the seven year period begins, he confirms this covenant, and this ultimately leads to the temple being rebuilt. And and the you know, a lot of people are acting skeptical that there's ever going to be a, a third temple. But let's stop and think about it. The Jews want the third temple. Christians want the third temple because they're so misguided on Bible prophecy. Okay. Who doesn't want the third temple? You know, Muslims. Muslims. Because they've got their dome, whatever. And so so the bottom line is that, you know, the Bible describes in the first part of Daniel's 70th week, there being a worldwide war. Islam is probably going to get their butts kicked in this worldwide war. 
and that's going to lead to the temple being built. So it's like the Antichrist is on his way to power. The man of sin is coming to power. And so one of his bargaining chips is, okay, you guys help me get to power, and then I'm going to get you your temple. You know, we're going to get you back uh, in control of that part of Jerusalem with the temple. Get these Muslims out of your hair or whatever. The temple gets rebuilt. The daily sacrifice is reinstated. All the Jews are thrilled. All the fake Christians are loving it. All the misguided people think it's the greatest thing ever. But then in the midst of the week comes the double cross where he basically enters into the holy place and declares himself to be God and sets up the, the, the abomination of desolation and whatever. Because the Bible describes in the second half of Daniel's 70th week, Jerusalem being trodden under of the Gentiles. That's not exactly a Jewish paradise when the Gentiles are taken over and basically the Jews are being punished by God and, and trodden down for 42 months. It's given to the Gentiles for 42 months. That's not what they bargained for at the at the beginning of the week. Right. When their temple's getting built, we're getting our sacrifices, it's going to be great. But then in the middle, he stops the sacrifice and says, no, I'm God, basically. That's the double cross or the working deceitfully or breaking the covenant in the midst of the week. Okay. So that's what everything points to. That's what we've always taught and believed. And, and it's, it's, it's all over scripture. It, it all adds up and fits this other view. It makes the end times a block. You know, what does everybody complain about the preacher rapture is that it's so confusing and they don't understand the book of revelation. And then once they get on post trip pre wrath, all of a sudden everything starts to click and make sense. Well, you know what? These guys with their messed up view on Daniel nine twenty seven. They're trying to take everybody back into the wilderness again where everything's a blob, everything's confused. Even their guru, Pastor Clem, is like, I don't know, maybe there's going to be a three-and-a-half-year period in the end. I don't know. I mean, who knows? Maybe it's pop Maybe Jesus will come tomorrow. I don't even know. Has the man of sin be revealed? I don't even know. Man of sin? I don't even know. He doesn't know. It's like, well, you know what? We like to know stuff. <laughs> That's why we like the post-trib pre-rap view, because we can actually understand the Bible. And you know why people love after the tribulation and they love these views is because they're like, wow, I'm reading Revelation and now it actually makes sense. And these people want to go backward. <clears throat> well, well, I think no, one of the points that I heard about that is it's kind of like, well, the disciples didn't understand things um, before the gospel. And then afterwards, they, they kind of got them or something. So if Christ comes down, he can explain it all to me. But I'm thinking like... They weren't dead yet. So, yeah, I guess there's a point in their lives where they didn't understand some part of the Bible, and later they end up getting that understanding. But it's not saying that in our lifetime we can't understand certain things in the Bible. It's kind of weird to title a, an entire book of the Bible Revelation, and we just were clueless and just have, like, no idea what's going on. I mean, in First Thessalonians chapter number 5, it says that we're supposed to be watching for these things. How, how can you be watching for something you have no idea what it is or – it could be anything or that it's like yeah. so mysterious. It kind of defeats the whole idea of even being able to watch. Yeah. How do you, how do you watch for this blob that we have no, we don't know. Is it three and a half years? Is it seven years? Maybe it's not even going to happen. Maybe it already happened. Maybe it's happening right now. Maybe it's all figured. What do you even watch for at that point? And so the, the post tribulation pre wrath view, futurist view, pre millennial view, is the right view. It's the biblical view. It's the only view that is actually saying that the stuff in Revelation is really going to happen 
and still jives with scripture because the pre-tribulation rapture position does say that the stuff is actually going to happen. But the pre-trib rapture is just totally foreign to scripture. So that's what's wrong with that view. And so it's post-trib pre-wrath. One of the greatest things I, I feel like I heard you preach one time was in the Revelation series, I believe itself, you, you kind of like oh, laid out just how the book of Revelation structured and just kind of, you know, because some people are, are confused as far as the chronology of how the book is, is layered. So do you think you could do us a service of just kind of quickly helping us understand the timeline of the book of Revelation itself? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the, the first thing to notice is how the book of Daniel's laid out. You know, the first six chapters of Daniel are all in chronological order. And then all of a sudden in chapter seven, you just have this major gear change and we jump backward in time. And the second half is completely different from the first half because the first half is all Bible stories. The second half is all prophecies. And the first half is chronological with itself. And the second half is chronological with itself. But there's a reboot in the middle. Well, Revelation is the exact same way. The first 11 chapters are in chronological order. Then when you get to chapter 12, you jump back in time and start talking about the birth of Christ at the beginning of chapter 12. So it's not hard to figure out that you've jumped back in time when all of a sudden <clears throat> Jesus is being born at the, at the beginning of chapter 12. And then chapters 12 through 22 are also in chronological order. And if you think about it, you know, the, the book that's delivered unto uh, – the Lamb to Open is a book that's written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. So when the Bible says book, it's actually not referring to what we think of as a book, the Codex, because this is something that got popular later. Back then, things were scrolls. And so being written within and on the backside, it's like you write on one side of the scroll and on the other side of the scroll. So if you, th you could think about it as 1 through 11 is one side of the scroll. 12 through 22 is the other side of the scroll. It's, it's split in half, and it tells basically the same chronology from two different angles. I mean, God loves to tell us the same story twice from two different angles because that's what he does in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, books of the Kings versus books of the Chronicles. And so you've got 1 through 11 and 12 through 22, two different stories. Now, here's the thing. 1 through 11 doesn't get you all the way because it stops right as the millennium is starting. Like right when the millennium is starting, that's where chapter 11 stops. And then in chapter 12, we start over with the birth of Christ. We move forward through the timeline. But this time, it goes beyond the millennium, goes to the great white throne, new heaven and new earth. So it takes you a little farther in that second half. But, you know, once you understand that, then you can see how these two events, the, the, these two timelines line up. You know, you take 1 through 11 over here, you take 12 to 22. You read them both in order. It all jives. It jives with Daniel, jives with the four Gospels, jives with the books of the Thessalonians. So, yeah. Well, let me ask you a tip. let me ask you a question um, because I, I've heard this since it starts back over in chapter twelve, and it actually kind of is going back to a further point with Christ uh, and maybe his birth and kind of talking about some of the symbolism there. I've then heard someone say, well, when it brings up some of these timelines of you know, 1,203 score days or, or these kind of events, that that has also already been fulfilled, that that was still past. Where, where do you really see it it going from past to then future in chapter 12? Well, the thing is, you know, first of all, it doesn't really necessarily go back much further because 
1 through 11 also starts in the first century AD because it starts with John on the Isle of Patmos, the seven churches. So the first five chapters are all taking place in the first century. So it's not really that weird that chapter 12 would also jump us back to the first century with the birth of Christ. But where it becomes future, it's obviously jumping over events in chapter 12 because it just it basically has Jesus being born and then it just has him ascending up to heaven. So obviously we skipped a lot there. Everything after him ascending to heaven in chapter 12 is future. So So. it would be pretty weird to, to jump backwards in time to, let's say, 33 AD approximately, and then skip down a few verses and say, oh, but this is actually, you know... 400 BC or 300 BC or 100 BC or something like that, that when this was fulfilled. Or if you jump to, let's say you're not necessarily jumping that far into the future, you're saying 70 AD, um, you would then have to believe that the rest of the book of Revelation happened in 70 AD and that kind of falls apart. It's just just nothing happened. Nothing happened worldwide in 70 AD. That's the thing. I mean, it's in 70 AD is a local event. Now, it's a big deal for Jerusalem because it's a great fulfillment of prophecy where Christ said your city is going to be burned. Not one stone of the temple is going to be left on another. It's a great fulfillment of prophecy. But in the scope of the globe, in the scope of the entire world, 70 AD is a nothing burger for the world. So, you know, the books, the book of Revelation is clearly describing worldwide cataclysms. Yeah, but someone said we were in the fifth seal. So, like, how do you, you know, debunk that? <laughs> I mean, then, then I would say, well, when did the when did the four horsemen of the apocalypse happen? You know, when did the fourth part of the earth get killed? And and when did when was the whole world at war? I mean, is that is that supposedly what World War One, World War Two? Just because those are called World War, you know, they didn't necessarily involve the entire world. Okay. I think that I think that those are horrible bloodbaths <clears throat> and the biggest wars possibly in human history. You know, depending on how you factor a war or how you think about a war, you could you could say that World War One and World War Two were the biggest wars in history, the biggest bloodbath in history. But what's coming in the future is going to be bigger than that. It's going to be worldwide, where a, a fourth part of the earth is being killed with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Um, it's just that, you know, to say that it, you know, I've heard somebody say, oh, the, the 1260 days is, is Islam or something, you know, and, and, you know, 1260 days or or 1260 years of Islam or whatever. That's a historicist view that just, you know, everything's an allegory, everything's a symbol and you can kind of just make it whatever you want. And the end times are a big blob and we don't even know what to watch for at that point. If you're going to be a futurist, meaning that you actually believe the stuff in Revelation is going to happen, you end up being post-trib pre-wrath if you actually study the Bible. And I think one of the wackier views that I heard from uh, people who would subscribe to the preterist view, uh, the idea that Jesus is the one being talked about in Daniel 9.27, that a lot of this stuff has already been fulfilled, that we're already in the fifth seal or whatever the case may be, is uh, a very... I think just kind of weird way of looking at the abomination of desolation, even claiming that it's nowhere found in Revelation, despite 
I think clear verses alluding to it, specifically, and I'll just bring one up right now in Revelation 13, 15, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So obviously we have this being described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in the book of Daniel. The Antichrist at the midpoint of Daniel's 70th week sets up the abomination of desolation, an image in the temple, and Revelation 13 alludes to it. So, I mean, could you speak to... Uh, have you heard, I mean, let me ask you this, I'll put it this way. Have you heard this before, this idea that, well, the abomination of desolation is really just figurative of our bodies and that uh, it, it's actually just, you know, taking the mark or something like that. It would be synonymous with taking the mark or whatever. I mean, what do you think of that kind of wacky interpretation of what the abomination of desolation really is? I mean, I mean, okay, if it's just equivalent with taking the mark, where's the mark of the beast? Did that already happen? You know, I mean, the Seventh Day Adventists say that the mark of the beast is is going to church on Sunday. You know, so you can just, you can just <laughs> well, we and crazy one. thing. They literally believe that Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. Well, did I put Sunday in my hand or my forehead? It doesn't even make sense. Just, you know, when you get that loose, it's the Catholic Eucharist in their right hand or in their mouth or something. <laughs> I mean, when you get that loose with your interpretation. You might as well, you can just make the Bible say whatever you want at that point. I mean, if everything's up for grabs, you know, then what's even the point? What, do, Like I said, what do you even watch for? I mean, we might as well just wait and see what happens because we don't have a stinking clue according to these people because everything's just a big blob. Okay. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 describes the Antichrist going into the temple of God and proclaiming himself to be God. Okay. In Revelation 13, he's, he's worshipped by the whole planet, and an image is set up. Just like back in the shadow fulfillments, an image of Zeus was put in the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes or whatever. Okay, And, and, and so the thing is, a lot of people get hung up in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where it says the temple of God. And they say, well, how could this third temple be of God if it's a Jewish temple offering animal sacrifices you know, the Antichrist is behind it getting even built in the first place. How is the temple of God? It's just, it's just called the temple of God. Yeah. That's what it's called. Okay. Just like when it says that he, as God, enters the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Obviously, he's not God. But he's claiming to be God. He is being called God by people. The temple is going to be called the temple of God. The, the city of Jerusalem is called the holy city. Of course, from our perspective as Bible-believing Christians, the city of Jerusalem is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. That's how God looks at it. That's how we look at it. But yet the Bible will still call it the holy city, temple of God, because that's, that's what it's being called. That's what it's being referred to as. He's just identifying it with what they're saying it is okay but th what they say is like well that can't be the temple of god so you know our body is the temple of the holy spirit and these guys in their broadcast the other day literally said i kid you not they said well you know if our body is the temple of the holy spirit and if the man of sin is you know entering into the temple of god saying that he is god they literally compared that to the covid vaccine like defiling <laughs> the temple that the government is the Antichrist. The That's government the is the man of sin. Of desolation. Yeah, and the, no, the government forcing you – they basically said that it's possible maybe the government forcing you to get a COVID vaccine is like kind of like, you know, man of sin invading the temple of the Holy Ghost. Or And then they said that, you know, because some churches 
received um, relief money during the COVID thing where, you know, because a lot of businesses got loans and they got government aid and whatever. That because some churches got that, you know, that's the Antichrist entering into the temple. You know, it's like, come on. Again, if you're going to get that wild, go be a Seventh-day Adventist and just say the mark of the beast is Sunday, which is because, you know, if you want to get that stupid and just say the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast and, you know, the government accepting or, or, or the church accepting money from the government, you know, that's the abomination of desolation. It's just like at that point, everything's up for grabs. You can just say whatever you want, teach whatever you want, believe whatever you want. You know, it, can we at least take a halfway literal interpretation here that just says, hey, the Antichrist is going to be a person who says that he's God and the whole world's going to worship him and you can't buy or sell unless you worship the guy. That's what's actually going to happen. We don't need all these other goofball theories, but I guess they're playing to their base of all the people who just want to make a big deal about COVID that it's the end of the world or something, you know? Well, and an and, interesting, and I, I'm annoyed by it too, but it's not the end of the world. Yeah. It's obviously frustrating, but something to me, you know, unless you're just going to really allegorize everything here, I really can't see how you could uh, take this literally from a historical perspective or from the preterist view, because if, if you have the antichrist being risen from the dead He's inhabited by the devil, and the world is saying, who can make war with the beast? Here's my question. Who would actually stop him? Like, I don't see how it would ever stop. Like, what's the end point to this? Like, at what point is the devil going to be satisfied, you know, with this particular model? You know, the Bible is painting the picture that he was never going to be satisfied. In fact, the whole goal is just to kill every single person. And the only one who can actually defeat him or stop him is Jesus Christ himself. That's why he's going to return on a white horse in Revelation chapter 19 and throw him and the false prophet straight into the lake of fire. Because otherwise, there's no literal stopping point to this antichrist system, you know, that's being set up. So unless you're going to allegorize that, I don't even see how you could kind of claim to believe in a literal fulfillment of those verses. Yeah, it's it, it it's way it's way far from being literal. And and I understand that not everything in the Bible is literal. I get it. But if you get once you get that loose with it, it loses all meaning at that point. I mean, it when you're saying the mark of the beast is Sunday, it's like you're just you, you're way off the reservation, buddy. You know, and when you're when you're going <clears> to <throat> sit there and say maybe the COVID vaccine is the mark of the beast or it's, it's very similar to the mark of the beast or, or the government, you know, giving a loan to a church during the pandemic is, is the abomination of desolation. I mean, that, that it's absurd at that point. Well, you could point to so many other events that are similar in, as far as logical concept. I mean, we already have the IRS, we already have, you know, when you form a church, you have to have a legal entity that's granted by the government uh, we already had social security numbers. We already have telephones that have all of our personal, you know, information. Obviously, we can see like a building up to the antichrist system being implemented, and through technology, it's going to make it to where it could actually force a economic system that's dependent upon a, a cashless mark that's you know received and, and is dealing with worship, you know. But that that obviously, you know, we can't really stop that economic system from taking place. It's kind of silly to worry about stopping the uh, technology because 
to me, it's funny because it's like you can't stop it. Like, how are you going to stop the technology from evolving to the point where the Antichrist can be able to do his thing? You know, the Bible has already told us what's going to happen. You're yeah, almost I mean, like I, I mean, trying got, to stop got, scripture from being fulfilled. You got Hobby Lobby, you know, refusing to put barcodes on their products because the barcode has a 666 in it, you know, <laughs> and and because of that, you know, I mean, here's the thing, though. Everybody else is going to have that barcode no matter what. Anyway, you're not going to stop it when one company does that, you know, but, but here's a point that I want to bring up to that, you know, that I think we need to address is that whenever you have people pushing these views like historicist view or preterist view or Daniel 927 is a messianic verse. It's not about the Antichrist. They always appeal to like all these theologians from the past. And we got to look at what the doctrine was back in the Reformation or in the past or whatever. Instead of just going by what the Bible says, they read all these theologians from the past. And, and here's what I think about that. I think that getting your end times theology from stuff that was written during the Reformation is a horrible idea. Okay. And you say, oh, well, they knew more back then. Wrong. They didn't. Okay. I can even forgive the Reformation era guys for being amillennial, postmillennial, or having a historical view because you have to put yourself in their position. Okay. They're looking at the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope as being the bad guy. The Pope is the Antichrist. And then they see in their lifetime basically. You know, the Pope losing power, entire countries breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church and getting more biblical. All of a sudden, the Bible's being printed and all these these churches are getting more and more biblical and further away from Roman Catholicism. I mean, look, the Protestant Reformation was on the right track. The problem with it is it just didn't go far enough. But I mean, look at the five solas of the Reformation. I mean, sola fide, faith alone. Amen. Right. Salvation by faith alone. Sola gratia. Grace alone. Sola scriptura. Scripture alone. Right. Is our is our basis for what we believe. Right. All the glory to God. Only Christ. Right. All of these things. These are great. I'm for it. But it didn't go far enough. But it was on the right track. So you could see how if you were living at that time. And you see this monolithic, evil Roman Catholic Church with the Pope taking the place of Christ. So he's an antichrist in that sense. And you see it all tumbling down and entire countries breaking free, the Bible being printed, the word of God getting in all of the people's languages and, and churning out of printing presses. You could see how they could have like a post-millennial view and think like, oh, wow, you know, things are going to keep getting better and better or – or it's all figurative because back then, how could they imagine it being literal that the two witnesses are killed and lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days and their bodies are seen by everybody in the world? I mean, if you're living in the 15, 1600s, how could you imagine everybody in the world, all kindreds, tongues, peoples, nations, seeing the dead bodies of these two guys lying in Jerusalem? So you can see how they didn't think it was going to be literal. But us in 2021... We're we're just thinking, well, that's easy. It's a webcam. The whole world could easily see that. So so, you know, it's better to listen to the Bible prophecy teaching from now, even the stuff from the 60s. It's all going to be about the Soviet Union or something. The stuff from the Reformation, 
they're only seeing it as Catholic versus Protestant. You know, that's not the only thing that's going on anymore. <clears throat> and we have the technology now where it could be fulfilled literally. And it makes way more sense that it would actually happen than that it's all allegorical. But can't you forgive them for thinking it's allegorical when they think like, how could you not buy or sell without getting a market? You can't just buy stuff on the black market. But we can see how everything could go cashless, CCTV everywhere, implantable chip, webcam on the streets of Jerusalem. It all makes sense. You know, it, interesting point, because I actually have the uh, Matthew Henry commentary with me um, in, in regards to Daniel chapter number nine. And, and I kind of read through it just to see what he thought about it. And he does interpret verse 27, he as the Messiah. But what's interesting about it is it really doesn't change. Like his viewpoint, though, on the explanation of the chapter isn't really different than ours. It's just that that one verse he tries to attribute to Christ and try to says like Christ kind of fulfilled the covenant. But then when it talks about the people, the prince, he still says that that's the Roman army. And he kind of like tries to say it's similar to where the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians are like God's servants to come and wipe out Jerusalem the first time. He's saying like, oh, the Romans and Titus, these they came and destroyed the temple uh, as as Christ's servants, you know, because of their overspreading of abominations and their rejection of the gospel. And then he kind of ties it into Matthew 24 at the end, uh, talking about how it's bringing up Daniel. And he's he's saying that when this happens, uh, you know, it's going to be a final judgment until, and then he brings up Romans uh, 11, which it says that blindness has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in, and then all Israel shall be saved. Now, he doesn't really elaborate, but it's just kind of funny because it's like he's almost right there as far as what we view, um, how at the end of, you know, that abomination of desolation in the future, we're going to have all Israel being saved when the fullness of the Gentiles are being come in, um, which is kind of a similar parallel. At the end of the day, who gives a rip what Matthew Henry said? Who is Matthew? Who is this guy? I don't care what he says. He means nothing to me. I have no interest in what Matthew Henry, I could show you hundreds of places in that Matthew Henry commentary where he's a complete bozo and teaches something stupid. So that guy is not relevant. <clears throat> you know, what we need to stick with is the word of God, the Bible, and Holy Spirit-filled teachers that are living and breathing right now. You know, why do we have to dig up some dead theologian to tell us what to believe. You know, if I want to hear what somebody has to say about the word of God, I want it to be somebody who's alive right now, who has the Holy Spirit in them, because I actually know who they are. I can actually inspect their fruit, because we know false prophets by their fruit. How can I test the fruit of some guy who's been dead for hundreds of years? Because people after they're dead are often lionized or slandered, and, you know, you can't trust some guy who's been dead for hundreds of years that you've never met, that no one you know has ever met. We've never been to his church. We don't know what his life was actually like. Just because something's written in a history book, you know, we can't just take it as gospel. And so I have no interest in what some dead, long past theologian had to say. I want to know what the Bible says, and I want to know what preachers who are alive right now and dwelled by the Holy Spirit are preaching right now, filled with the Holy Spirit. Because you know what? We have 7.4 billion people on this planet, right? 
it, aren't there enough people to pick from? Aren't there some spirit-filled man of, men of God somewhere on this planet right now that can expound God word, God's word to us that we don't have to go to a corpse to tell us what the truth is? You know, the Bible is the book that we turn to as far as the source, the, the authority, the word. A, a commentary or a theology book has no authority. Only the Bible has authority. And if I want to hear the Bible expounded, I want to hear it expounded by somebody who's alive right now that I can actually look into their eyes and 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 hear them talk and actually check their fruit and figure out who they are. Well, I, I totally agree that it, it's kind of silly to, to try and go back in time and, and try to figure out what anybody believed uh, or, or what they were like or if they were saved. I don't even think Matthew Henry saved, number one, so I don't really care. I, I really feel like when it look, you go back to these church fathers, none of these guys even appear saved. And it, it'd probably be similar to if, if someone discovered a book from our modern era – all the people that are popular and, and the copies that would survive would be all the raging heretics of the day that nobody would even want to listen to. So it's kind of it's kind of bizarre. I, I do think it's interesting from a historical perspective, though, to simply identify like what doctrines people did believe and, and kind of the evolution of maybe mainstream views or, or how the Catholic Church or some of these churches have like shifted on, on what they kind of look to to Scripture. Because, you know, Matthew Henry specifically is very anti- uh, the Jews being God's chosen people, and that's kind of been historical doctrine. It's only like since 1948 or something that people then radically changed their view, and we kind of have this major Zionism coming into play. And and, and I find that interesting. I don't know that it proves yeah, anything per no, it se. Is interesting, but but <clears throat> but here's the thing: let's say there's a false doctrine out there, and you hear about a false doctrine, and you're like, "That's a false doctrine." And then you find out, well, Matthew Henry believed it as commentary. That's not going to make you go like, well, hmm, maybe I should rethink that. Well, I mean, if Matthew Henry's saying it, I mean, you don't care any more than I do. At the end of the day, you and I only care what the Bible says and what actual saved Christians believe, right? Today, that are alive today, not not from the past. Like, yeah, like, obviously like you the were, Bible's we're, we're a living document. today. Like we were talking on the phone, uh, what was it yesterday or whatever, and and you made the point and said that you know, if anything, doctrine is going to get more accurate over time, because of the fact that you know, in the Book of Acts, you see the apostles confused about a lot of things, and they're kind of figuring things out at times, and then when you get to you know, the epistles are giving clarity. And, you know, obviously the epistles of James and John and Peter are being written later than the stuff we see happening in the book of Acts. And they definitely have greater understanding. And so, you know, people are figuring things out. And as we as we see the end approaching, you know, we get a greater understanding of these things. The Bible even says, you know, knowledge shall increase in the end times. Why would I assume that that? that people knew more about end times prophecy in the 1500s when they didn't even have the technology that would even cause the stuff to even be possible to be literally fulfilled. Whereas now we can see how it could be literally fulfilled. You know, I just, for, for the life of me, I cannot understand why we don't just base what we believe on the Bible and on what people that we actually know that are actually saved believe right now, like how the Holy Spirit's leading them, how the Holy Spirit's leading us, because how can we really try the spirits of back then? 
because we, we can't really meet those people. We can't check their fruit. We can't see what their converts are like. We can't see what their church is like. We can't, we can't even ask them questions. They're dead. And it's like, if you have to resort to these dead people, then you know what that just shows that you, you why I'll put it this way. If your view is correct, you should be able to prove it with the Bible alone and support it with people that are living today, believing it alone. Like it, it should be like the Holy Spirit and the Bible now. Why? Yeah, I mean, it, the fact that you have to dig up someone to keep making that point, it shows that you're, you must be weak on support from the Bible or from actual saved Christians you can point to right now believing this. It, it kind of makes me think of the Jews. Like the Jews are kind of rejecting Jesus in the flesh, telling them what the Bible says. And they're like, well, we're Moses' disciple. You know, like they're like pointing back mm -hmm. in time. And and I've, I, you kind of hear this like from this house, house church movement and stuff like that, how they'll be like, well, we're going back to the Acts chapter two church or whatever. But, but I find it funny because it's like nowhere in the Bible do you see at any point in, in time is Paul saying like, you guys need to go back to the church in Acts chapter two. Like you need to go back to the old way of doing it. And, and it also makes me think of how people will say, you know, I like the 2006 version of Pastor Anderson, <laughs> you know, not the 2021 he version. He was nicer back he, then. Yeah. It's like it was you're better somehow in 2005 and six or something. Like you haven't gotten better with age or more understanding of reading the Bible. It's like this the first version of Anderson, Pastor Anderson, was like somehow far superior. Yeah, because because when I was 24 years old, I knew everything and had all the right answers. <laughs> But now that I'm 40 and have 16 years in the ministry, I know so much less now. I mean, that's absurd. And in the book of Acts, look look at how they're having all these problems with supporting this multitude of widows where it just becomes their full-time job waiting tables. Okay. Obviously, that didn't work. People want to point to that stuff as being some kind of an idealized system. But by the time you get to the Apostle Paul <clears throat> writing one of his last epistles – First Timothy chapter five, you know, it's let not a window be t widow be taken under the number under three score years old. And he gives so many criteria for a widow to be supported by the church that very few widows would make the cut. Right. And it would be a very small part of a church's ministry, whereas in Acts, it was just this massive thing. Well, it, th they're still figuring things out. You know, it, it didn't work. And, you know, if you if we want to go back to the book of Acts, if I have to go back to the book of Acts, then I want to go back to Acts 28, you know, because the later the better as far as I'm concerned. You know, well, Acts 28 where he says, I'm done going to the Jews. Let's go to the Gentiles. <laughs> right. I mean, is your you church going to get better over time or worse? It's kind of a uh, – it, it kind of seems a little obvious. Obviously, you know, in, in the book of Revelation, you, have, you see churches departing from doctrines or faith and they need to kind of get, you know, sharpened back on that particular point. But in general speaking, you know – I feel like our church keeps getting better every year and that, you know, doctrine's getting clearer or we're having more understanding or more wisdom. Like, it, it would be weird to think that we have to constantly go back to some previous state that rather than doing better. And, and a point of the Bible that I always like to bring up when people have this weird ideology is the Passover itself. Because the Passover is delivered to Moses and the children of Israel and then we go several hundred years into the future, and then we have Hezekiah performing the Passover later in the future. And when he performs the Passover, God's like commending him, saying, 
this is the greatest that the Passover's ever been observed or ever been fulfilled or something like that. And it's like, it's so much further from when the command was actually given the instructions and like their first iteration, but yet it's still better. Meaning that the more biblical you are, the more bet like the better it's going to be. It's not like you had to be closer to the timeline. It's like, it's, it's more about closer to what the scriptures actually say rather than the proximity to the instruction. That's a great point. That's a great point about Hezekiah and Josiah in some ways being better than even David in some ways. And it just Not gives like us hope go to back say, to David. yeah, well, it gives us hope to say that we can constantly improve church. We don't have to like uh, feel like it's constantly devolving, that we can constantly make it better and that you could have the best church theoretically as opposed to like, well, I w- we can't have a, the, the 1950s church, or we'll never have the 1900s church, or we'll never have the you know this this idolized version of church in the history. You could theoretically have a better version by just following what the Bible actually teaches. Well, let me tell you where this this wrong idea is coming from. It's because all the popular preachers are all bad. Like right now, who the guys who are on TV, the guys whose books are in Barnes and Noble are all bad. You know, the, who are the big name preachers right now? Joel Osteen, Rick Warren, T.D. Jakes, you know, Stephen Furtick or something, right? That <clears throat> weird white guy with dreadlocks or whatever. <laughs> I mean, you, you know. Todd White. <laughs> yeah, Kenneth Copeland, you know. Yeah. These are all the big name popular guys, and they're all false teachers, right? But right. then all of a sudden we have this idea that all the popular teachers from the past were all good. So in the 1600s, all the most popular preachers were good. 1700s, all the most popular preachers are good. 1800s, all the most popular preachers are good. Early 1900s, all the most popular preachers are good. And then just only in our lifetime are they all bad. Well, no, actually, here's the true story. The popular preachers have always been bad and they always will be bad. That makes a lot more sense that the world has always been like it is right now, where broad is the way that leads to destruction. And and so when you have this idea that all of these popular preachers in the past were all good, they were so great, and then you have these people that are in these dead churches that are doing nothing right now, so then they always have this syndrome that the past was better, the past was better, because they're in a do-nothing lame church right now, so then it's like, oh man, the glory days were either in the 60s or in the early 20th century, or the Great Awakening, or the Second Great Awakening, or oh man, the Reformation was so great. No, you know, the way we think about it as independent fundamentalist Baptists is, we're living in the greatest days right now, like we want to do greater works than anyone's ever done. I just believe that whether you're living in the year, you know, uh, 2021 or the year 1832 or the year 1357 or the year 755, it doesn't matter when you're living. If you have the Holy Spirit and the word of God, you can understand the Bible. You can do great things for God. You can be greater than the previous generation. It's not just this. this devolving as you as you put it like yeah the world is getting worse obviously but is christianity getting worse no you you know and the reason people think it's getting worse because they go to a dumb church if you actually go to a good church you wouldn't think it's getting worse you'd think this is great we're doing great we're winning souls we're doing great works for god so what did, did the holy spirit get worse did the bible get worse did human nature get worse no 
It's the same as it's always been. And so this this <clears throat> constant looking backward to these theologians and and thinking everything was better in the past. You know, if you inquire why the former days were better than these days, you inquire, inquire foolishly, according to the book of Ecclesiastes. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Um, do you have any, do you have another question that you want to kind of get to to kind of wrap this up? I know we've talked a lot about yeah, these subjects. I do. I, ha- I had one question uh, just to kind of, like you said, just to wrap it up. But just to, by the way, I thought this conversation you guys were having was also important, though, because of the fact that people tend to authenticate or at least try to authenticate their doctrine by what preachers in the past have believed. But of course, the Bible says, you know, the thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. If the popular preachers, Pastor Anderson, like you were saying, are wicked now, they probably were back then, too. So it's sort of useless to use them in order to legitimize whatever you believe rather than the Word of God. And, you know, we talked about a lot of different things tonight. Obviously, when it comes to end times Bible prophecy, we're not going to hit every single subject in one live stream, you know, and that's just the reality. But one question that was brought up to me that I guess we can end with is this, and I think it makes sense to end with this because people are looking. You know, the Bible says, what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. People are watching, they're looking, and and they're uh, obviously by studying the Word of God. But what in your – and this is for both of you, obviously – what in, in your mind kickstarts the seven years that we've been talking about, not just in Daniel, but of course in – in Revelation as well. Obviously, you have the opening of the first seal, but you know, uh, is it the devil getting cast out from heaven? Technically, what is it that starts the seven-year period? Is my first question. Second, what is the first thing we're going to see that would then be an indicator for us to know? All right, we actually are in the tribulation now. And Pastor well, I can start. Um, I'll say that. You know, it's like it, it's it's basically there's war in heaven. The devil's cast down and he knows that he only has a little time. And so he sets these things in motion. You know, the Bible says of the Antichrist, that the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And so it starts with the devil being cast out of heaven. There's a war in heaven. The devil's cast down. He knows that he only has a little time. And so he begins to empower the man of sin. Okay, and and so, you know, he confirms the covenant with many for one week, you know, whatever that agreement is that sets in motion these course of events. So it's the devil being cast down and then him working through the man of sin to make this covenant for seven years. Yeah, I would agree. Oh, and then. What was the second part of your question? Uh, so Sorry. my second, the second part of the question, obviously that's, you know, from God's perspective, that would be when it starts. But what about from our perspective? What is it that we would see that would be an indicator for us to know that we're in the tribulation? Is it not going to be apparent, you know, until seal, I guess seal number two. I mean, the thing is, you've, you've had world wars in the past, so it wouldn't necessarily yeah. be apparent in seal you, two. You don't what would you look for? Sure. Uh, I would say the abomination of desolation. If you until you see the abomination of desolation, you can't be a hundred percent. And I'll pass it over to Pastor Shelley. I would agree that I think the kicking off point is is the devil being thrown out of heaven because then it says he knows that he has a short sp- space, like he has a short amount of time to basically accomplish whatever else he wants to accomplish. Um, I don't know if it's like the exact same day that then he's going to in you know entice the antichrist to start making this covenant but somehow that's going to kind of trigger the the whole chain of events i I think that 
the, from a hundred percent perspective, it has to be the abomination of desolation. I think that you know, with the world wars, where we would kind of start, you know, believing that it's it could probably be the end, is when you kind of see a singular nation or figurehead actually getting world domination. Which I I don't know that we've seen that, except for with the beasts. Like that's the whole kind of essence of the beasts is a one world kind of government, one world gut like leader with the Babylonians, with the Greeks or the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks and the Romans. And so I do not believe that there will be a one world leader and one world government that's not the the end times antichrist. So I think it, at some point, and again, I wouldn't be saying that the 100% mark isn't really the fifth seal because that's probably when you know for sure, that's what Matthew 24 is pointing to. But just from understanding what prophecy is pointing to and everything, if it comes to be that America has literally conquered the whole world, you know, I'm basically going to be anticipating someone to, to basically die and come back yeah. to life or something, because I, I just don't, I don't believe that there'll be a literal country in charge of the whole world. And it's not the end times. Like, I don't think China is going to take over the world or something. And, and we're just going to all be subject to them. And it's not the end times or something. I think once there's a full, uh, domination by any particular country that we're pretty much knocking at the door. Yeah. Well, just yeah, as a quick, or even just, sorry, um, even just the building of the third temple would be another thing where you'd say, yeah, this is probably it, you know, but it's just, it's not a hundred percent, but it'd be like 99% probably at that point. I was going to bring that up uh, with regard to the temple, just as a quick follow-up. I know we're going we're gonna to wrap it up soon. But in Daniel chapter 8, it says in verse 13, Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said, Unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. My question for you guys is this. Would the daily sacrifice be a potential marker. I know, Pastor Anderson, you brought up the abomination of desolation. I don't have a lot of time to develop this, but obviously doing the math here, we're looking at uh, this is a 2,300-day period, and so you subtract that with the total number of days, which is 2,550. We're looking at daily sacrifices commencing 250 days into Daniel's 70th week. Is that Something that you believe, and obviously this is conjecture on our part a little bit, but with the daily sacrifices commencing in that temple in Jerusalem potentially be a marker for us to know that, hey, we're actually in that in that tribulation period now. Yeah, and I mean, you, you could look at that and think this is probably it. That's probably what that verse means because obviously we're not – that's what – I agree with your interpretation of that verse, but we – you know, I'm not a hundred percent that that's what that verse means. I'm 90 some percent, you know, but yeah, when you see the daily sacrifice start third temple, any of these things are, are huge indicators that this is not a drill. But what I'm saying is that we can't be a hundred percent sure because could there be some kind of a false start or an abortive start to this? And then it backs up again. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. maybe, maybe, uh, it doesn't, Maybe there's a, an abortive attempt that doesn't get to the finish line, and then it's later. But like I said, if I saw it, I'd be saying, yeah, I'm 97% sure. But what's funny is that we have this COVID pandemic, which is a tiny blip 
on the radar when you think about world history because it's not even close to being the worst thing that anybody's gone through. It's it's it's. I mean, is it a pain in the neck? Yeah, but it's super minor compared to a lot of horrible things that have happened throughout history. It's not that big of a deal, and yet it's like it's the end of the world. It's the tribulation. It's the mark of the beast. It's like, come on. But if you actually have a temple being built and daily sacrifices, the whole world's at war. Then yeah, okay. At that point, then I'll start saying that the sky is falling too. But I'm not going to say it about this stupid COVID, you know, nothing burger. Well, and I, I, to piggyback off that, I mean, technically, there's nothing in my mind stopping America from being communist for a hundred years before the end times. You know, even if that did happen as a judgment against America, that doesn't really cease from Bible prophecy being fulfilled. And and I don't want that whatsoever. But at the same time, it's like most of the COVID agenda doesn't even necessarily fit the, you know, last seven years of the book of Revelation. I, I do think it's plausible that it could spawn into something. You know, I guess if, if we found out that, hey, you know, China, you know, really <clears throat> lied about this virus and and they've been doing biological warfare against us and the conservatives somehow regain the house and they start talking about the transparency of, of foreign election interference or just all kinds of issues or something. Maybe that could be a precursor to actually get the world to start getting into war and fighting or, or something like that perhaps. But to me, if the COVID agenda succeeds, I don't see how that really even fulfills is going to usher us into that last seven years. Uh, to me, it would almost have to fail in order for us to be entered into some kind of uh, world war or something like that. But I don't, I don't know what your perspective is. I mean, I, I think that anything, literally anything could lead into those seven years. But until something from the seven years actually happens, you know, then we'll talk when something actually happens from the seven. But you could you could make that case about anything. You could say 9-11 could lead into yeah. the end times. The Gulf War could lead into the end times. You know, uh, what what Trump did where he declared Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel could lead into the end. You know, everything could lead into the end times, literally everything. But, you know, it's meaningless. And when you're just constantly sounding the alarm, it's like you're going to wear people out. It's like the boy who cried wolf. If you're just constantly sounding the alarm that it's the end of the world, then people are going to get so weary of it. They're going to be like, well, where is the promise of his coming? Not, you know, no, nothing ever happens. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of my in view of that verse is that there's going to be so many false alarms that people are just going to get so sick and tired of it. I even think it's plausible that chips planted in people's hands and forehead will exist before the mark of the beast, that it'll just be like potentially commonplace or, or lots of people have already done it. And, there'll be initial pushback saying this is the mark and this is the end or whatever, even though it has nothing to do with worship, the antichrist. And then that'll basically cause everybody to just say like, see, this isn't even a real thing or this isn't, you know, going to happen. And it makes it even easier to actually accept the antichrist. But I could be wrong. It could be the first iteration of a mark of some kind of a chip or some kind implanted in a, a person's body. But I don't even think that, it has to be the first iteration because there's already companies and, and places where people have chipped themselves and, 
you know, obviously I've never, I don't want to get a chip whatsoever. And as much technology as I embrace, it's probably not the technology I'll ever embrace, but, uh, you could say it's pretty safe. I'm not going to take that. John MacArthur though, he might take the, the mark. So, <laughs> yeah, well, it, the most radical I get is that when I look at my phone, it unlocks. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that's, that's as biometric as I get right now. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think some people, just to kind of round things out, uh, some people might <clears throat> wonder, you know, why were we, you know, kind of uh, dismantling some of these false uh, doctrines so heavily earlier on in the broadcast and kind of throughout the broadcast and that's because, first of all, we love the truth. Okay, we hate lies. But it's not just that. This idea that Jesus is coming first, you know, which, of course, the pre-tribbers would subscribe to. And uh, it's funny how, by the way, they've kind of merged with the preterists as well. It's all, it's all gone full circle, like you said, Pastor Anderson, in one of your sermons, where they've kind of borrowed from the pre-trib uh, sort of worldview, if you want to call it that, to ascertain that, hey, Jesus can come back at any moment, pre-tribbers, because they think he's going to come before the tribulation, preterists, because I guess the tribulation's already happening, or it happened, or whatever they they believe. But here's my point. The, it, it's very dangerous, I think, for people to go around saying Jesus is coming first, because the Masa- the Antichrist is going to counterfeit him in many different ways, including a counterfeit death and resurrection. And so uh, that's why podcasts like this, I think, are important and why dismantling a lot of these false doctrines are important as well. Now, of course, Jesus did say in Matthew 24 that, you know, he's going to, you know, these false Christs are going to deceive, if it were possible, the elect. So it's not like any of the saved are going to get deceived anyway. But still, you want to have the least amount of of, uh, confusion as possible. And so uh, that's why it's important to clear these things up for anybody out there who was kind of wondering about that. But Pastor Shelley, anything else you wanted to say as we uh, land the plane here? Yeah, I think I think we've we've definitely hit a lot of good points this evening. Was there an, was there another point Pastor Anderson that you're wanting to bring up before we kind of wrap this evening? No, I'm satisfied. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, really, really great special guest to have. And, thank you for uh, your time. We got we got to thank our production team. It's basically one man, Tim. He just he basically put this whole thing together, and it, it's flowed really well. And uh, so, hopefully, in the future, uh, you could be a, a guest again, uh, maybe a different topic or a, a second dip at the end times. And so, we really appreciate you being on here with us and uh, kicking this off with us this evening. But that's pretty much going to wrap us up for the Baptist bias. And again, you know, you've heard a lot of points today, a lot of, uh, you know, dogmatic viewpoints, you know, things like, how can you say that T.D. Jakes and, and Kenneth Cope and all these people are false prophets? Well, that's the Baptist bias. And, you know, how can you say that, you know, Jesus isn't coming back at any moment? And uh, how can you reject Matthew Henry or Catholics? And and how can you have such strong viewpoints? Well, it's because we have the Baptist bias. You know, that's the whole point of the podcast. And we really want to emphasize that. And we want to help you realize that the world should be interpreted through the viewpoint of the Baptist bias. Ben, sign us off. That's it for the pilot edition of this broadcast, folks. We will talk to you guys again after a while. <laughs>